0: Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians 1, Does the Bible tell us in the New Testament church that angels, angels are among us, unperceived in this throng. Amen. Hebrews twelve twenty two through 24, that we are coming to Mount Zion and to an innumerable company of angels. Right. And many other scriptures could be used and have been used in preaching on that subject. Let me read to you one sentence of the Holy Word of God, verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Amen and amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, read it distinctly and seek to give the sense to cause understanding, bless our holy and noble goal to bear fruit in all the ears and hearts and minds of those present, and of those that will hear this in other places at other times. We ask this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the praise of your glorious grace through him and because of him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In verse 13, we had introduced to us, One of the great blessings of God's grace, and that is that he sends men to preach his word for us to hear, believe, and call upon him, be baptized, and live as his disciples in this world. And so it said, In whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Belief follows necessarily hearing the gospel. But belief also follows regeneration that changes our hearts and gives us a new nature and seeing eyes and hearing ears and understanding hearts and minds to embrace that truth that we hear. We looked at the fact that it's called the word of truth. There's lots of words. There's lots of people talking. There's lots of people blogging, but they're all blinded idiots unless they speak according to this word, any one of us. That's why it says in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And the Bible has brought light to whatever nation it went. The nations that have rejected the Bible have not had the light that the nations that accepted the Bible, protected the Bible, and promoted the Bible have had. And we're blessed to be in one of those nations. But there's a whole lot more than just the national, political, witty inventions, military blessing that follows God's word. There is the communication of the truth of salvation to God's elect in that place. And so we've heard the word of truth, which is the good news of your salvation. When you see the word gospel, just remember that its meaning is good news. And though this salvation that has been described from verse 3 through verse 12 has been all by God's will, God's grace, God's purpose, God's pleasure, we don't know about it until it's conveyed to us by the preaching of God's word and we can hear it. And when we hear it, we trust in the object of it, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And after we believe, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Holy Spirit regenerates us. Then we believe. Then we are sealed. And there is a very logical and a very sequential relationship of those things described in the Bible. This 13th verse says, After that ye believed, Ye were sealed. So sealing comes after believing, but believing comes after being regenerated. So sealing is not regeneration. Sealing is God's mark upon His regenerate children by the presence of Himself that gives them power to live victorious, different, changed lives. Let me run through that list of different operations of the Holy Spirit again. I'm going to change one of them to keep it all in the book of Ephesians. That means I will have given you 11. Okay, I'm going to go from 2 to 10 so I won't distract you with 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Here we go. From the book of Ephesians, the first operation of the Holy Spirit of God upon us is regeneration when He quickens us from death in trespasses and sins by recreating a new life within us that is spiritually oriented, that loves the things of God and hates sin, our new nature. It's in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. By comparing it to other places in the Bible like John 3 or Titus 3, 5, We are told the work of regeneration is by the Holy Spirit. Of the three persons in the Godhead, ordinarily it is the Holy Spirit assigned to do the work of regenerating us. So it is except a man be born of the Spirit in John 3 or Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So, the first one is described in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2. Now, it has already been hinted at in verses 19 and 20 of the first chapter, where Jesus Christ's dead body was raised up by the mighty power of God, and it takes that same power to regenerate us, to get us to believe the gospel. What part of the Godhead raised up the Lord Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit, Romans chapter one and verse four, who the, the the power of the Spirit of holiness raised up the Lord Jesus Christ, according to one Romans one four. I don't want to say any more on that subject, lest I distract you. So we have regeneration with the Holy Spirit. Then we have sealing. The regeneration took place. We believe the gospel because we've been regenerated. Then we are sealed after we are. After we believe and are baptized, baptism and belief go hand in hand in the Bible. The Bible says, repent and be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 5.32 says, the Holy Spirit is given to them that obey Him. Well, how far down the road of obedience do you have to go before you're given the Holy Spirit? The ordinance of baptism, which is the reflection of faith, which shows that you have a conscience that wants to give God an answer. I don't want to get off on that very far either. But it's the sealing presence. So there's two operations, two roles of the Holy Spirit so far. He regenerates us. We believe the gospel. And then He seals us by giving us His presence for powerful Christian, joyful living that changes us from what we were before. It's visible to others, and we know the testimony of it in our own hearts. Then there is number three, revelation of further wisdom and knowledge that we need, and it's in chapter 1, verse 17. Paul is praying for this church. It was a church that he had founded. He had initially taught for a couple of years. He prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know. See, this is knowledge that we can gain after being sealed. That ye may know what is the hope of His calling, where we are headed, and what is in store for us, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe. Now, Paul has already addressed this church as being elect, redeemed, and sealed. But just a few verses later, he prays that they can have the Spirit for revelation of wisdom and knowledge. Do you follow that this is the same Spirit? And it's showing that while it was true for the Ephesian saints, it's also true for us that we advance from one degree of glory to another, by the power of full Spirit in our lives. Number one, regeneration. Number two, sealing presence. Number three, revelation of further wisdom and knowledge. Number four, access to God by assisted praying. It's in chapter 2 and verse 18. For through Him, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know from Romans chapter 8, That the Holy Spirit assists our praying in two ways. He prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, and He prays according to the will of God, because He is God. That shouldn't be too hard. Number five, church ministry. We look further down in chapter 2, and we come to verse 21, where it's describing the local church, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together, this is specifically the local church at Ephesus, in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. God, by the presence of His Spirit, inhabits His churches. That's the seven spirits of God from Revelation 1 for the seven churches of Asia that were singled out for that wonderful lesson in the first three chapters. More can be said about any one of these operations or roles. Trust me. I'm just wanting to show you that in this one epistle they're mentioned. That was number five. Number six, spiritual might and knowledge of Christ's love. Look at chapter 3 and verse 14, verses I've read to you many times, where Paul prays, and let's, 14, 15, let's go to 16, that they would be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, I thought they had already believed. But there is a fuller comprehension of the Lord Jesus Christ than the bare initial belief necessary to be baptized. It is a progression until we are filled with all the fullness of God. And so it says here, Paul is praying for this church he founded, he taught, who were already sealed with the Holy Ghost, that they would gain in their understanding of Christ. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, verse 17 That ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Because these different roles of the Holy Spirit are in one epistle, in one epistle, then we know that there are advancing stages and degrees of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because in chapter 1, he's already got them born again and sealed. But as we progress further, we find out that Paul wants that church to have more. We want more of what Paul wanted more for them. So in chapter 1, verse 13, they're sealed. But in verse 17, they need this spirit of revelation for more knowledge. Because how much knowledge does it take to believe on Jesus Christ and be baptized? Let's hear it in all of its depth. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Listen to how Jesus told his apostles to preach. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. So that must include some body of knowledge. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Notice, teach, baptize, teach. Right. What is What teaching needs to be done before baptism? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What teaching comes after baptism? Everything else. So do you see that here? When you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You got an additional gift of the Holy Spirit beyond regeneration. But that sealing is not enough. That's just the next stage after regeneration. Then there is the spirit of revelation and wisdom and knowledge of Christ, the hope of his calling, the glory of his inheritance, the might of his power to regenerate us, things that we want to learn more fully. And it continues to go past that. By the time we get over to chapter 3, Paul's wanting them to have the spirit's ministry that shows us the love of Christ in all four of its dimensions that passes human knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That was number 6. Number 7, there's revelation to teachers for perfecting the saints. Chapter 3 and verse 5. Chapter 3 and verse 8 describe the gift of the Spirit to Paul in order to be able to teach the Ephesians. And in chapter 4, it tells us that though apostles, prophets, and evangelists no longer exist, there are pastors and teachers that are supposed to do that work by a gift given from Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit to the church. Then there's number eight, fruit bearing, chapter five and verse nine. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Verse eighteen, not yet. Uh, that's that's uh, we just we'll use verse nine right there. Then we'll go to chapter six and we'll look at verses seventeen and eighteen. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit inspired it. The Spirit wrote it, which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. How do you pray in the Spirit? You confess your sins so the Spirit is not grieved or quenched. You submit your will to the will of God, which is submitting to the will of the Spirit. You understand the Spirit is able to pray for you and will pray with you and for you according to the will of God. You humble yourself before the Spirit of God. You don't flip out light words. You pray with your understanding. You pray with faith in God by the power of the Holy Spirit will assist and bless your praying. You pray for spiritual content. You pray with proper spiritual humility in the Holy Ghost. That's how we're supposed to fight. And then there's number 10. In light of all this, Do you know what we ought to do? It's verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 5. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now he is writing an epistle to a church, a specific church at Ephesus, which is one of the seven churches of Asia of Revelation chapters 1 through 3. And he says, be filled with the Spirit. So regeneration doesn't fill us. Sealing doesn't fill us. The spirit of revelation doesn't fill us. Each one of us, as members of this church, needs to keep our sins confessed, loving the things of Christ, and humbling ourselves before God and asking Him to fill us. Luke chapter 11 and verse 13. If ye, then being evil fathers, all of us are evil fathers, meaning that we're sinful, we're not perfect, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? And that's part of being filled with the Spirit, all in one epistle. So when we come back and we look at chapter 1 and verse 13, and it says that we've been sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, God promised us the presence of His Spirit, and this epistle is filled with him. I don't have time to preach on the Holy Spirit, and you know that. You can search for those words on our website, Holy Spirit. But when the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, what does the Bible tell us? The Spirit of God moved upon it. And what resulted? Light, dry land, firmament, below Firmament above the waters, firmament below the waters, and everything else that occurred. When the Spirit of God came on Samson, what happened? All kinds of things. When they locked him up one night in a city, what happened the next morning when they went and looked for the massive posts and pillars and their city gates? Our boy had carried them 20 miles away to the top of a nearby mountain because the Spirit of God came upon him. When the Spirit of God came upon him and he was surrounded by a thousand men, what weapon was at hand? The jawbone of an ass. Was it sufficient? More than sufficient. Did it slay a thousand? What else did it do for our boy? It gave him a drink afterwards because he was thirsty, and I'm speaking very respectfully about our boy. I'm talking about our champion of the book of Judges, When the Spirit of the Lord would come upon David, would things happen? He'd kill a lion. He'd kill a bear. He'd rescue his father's sheep. Was the Spirit of God always upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Did the Spirit of God come upon Peter? Was the Peter of Pentecost different from the Peter of Passover? Do you remember the Peter of Passover? Who could get the Peter of Passover... To swear with oaths against the Lord Jesus Christ. A little girl. How about the, the Peter of Pentecost? When the whole nation, the leadership of the Jews rose up against him, did he unload with one of the best sermons in the Bible? Does, that, does any of that excite you? Yeah, we want to be filled with the Spirit. And he's in all six chapters of this book that we're seeking to study. Okay, let's go to that 14th verse. Which, referring to the Holy Spirit that Ephesians 1.13 ended with, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. Now, earnest can be an adverb describing something like desire. I have an earnest desire. That means I have a fervent and intense desire for something. Or earnest can be a noun. And here it's a noun. Earnest money. Have you ever heard about earnest money being put down for a transaction? That explains this noun because here it's being used as a noun which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. This gift of the Holy Spirit that Baptists tend to ignore because they're afraid of all the excesses of the Charismatics and Pentecostals that have corrupted and perverted the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is a doctrine that we want to embrace. And a person of the Godhead that we want to love, pray for, submit to, and have Him flow through our lives, we want John 7 to be fulfilled in our church that out of our bellies will flow rivers of living waters. Lord, help us to that end. Spiritual, spiritually changing our lives in every aspect that He would flow out of us in the fruit that He gives. Which, so we're speaking about the Holy Spirit there in that first word, which has been introduced to us in the latter part of verse 13. The Holy Spirit is our seal or guarantee of heaven as that 13th verse teaches. Now an earnest is a down payment or a surety bond of performance by the one giving it. If you're going to buy real property, real estate, it's called real property. Technically, usually, real estate. The standard is to put down 3% of the purchase price as your earnest money. It's not really a down payment. The bank doesn't let you get away very many times with 3% for your down payment. They want 20% down in order to give you a mortgage without private mortgage insurance. And let's just cut that little rabbit right there and get back to earnest. So you found a house that you want and you drove your beat-up vehicle to meet the seller. And the seller looks out in the driveway and sees your beat-up vehicle and says... Uh-uh. I'm not going to take this house off the market because I don't think they can perform. And so it's a $150,000 house. So you write them a check for 4,500 or you've brought it with you and it's an official bank check from a local bank that proves that you have 4,500 and you are putting it up that you want to sign a contract to purchase and they can, they can go ahead and sign with a clear conscience that you're able to perform. If you're unable to perform in the specified time of typically 30 days, they get to keep your 4500 You put that up as earnest money. You put that up as a surety bond. There's all these different technical or legal words that describe putting up money that you will perform. Right. I will do what I said I would do, and I'm giving this that if I do not do it, you can keep it. It's lost money for me. Do you know what God gave as the earnest of the fact that there is a last will and testament that has you as the beneficiary and the benefits are heaven? What did He give? He gave His Son, but that's not here in this context. He gave His Spirit. He gave Himself. What more could He give? Now $4,500 is not what it used to be. $4,500 doesn't buy much anymore. When we look at the value of a transaction, or when we look at the amount of an earnest, we can usually decide about how big this transaction might be. And $4,500 as performance money does not indicate all that big of a transaction. But let's try this on for size. The presence of God on the planet earth in little people like you and me. Is that a pretty big earnest deposit? What in the world is coming? You know, intuitively I say, that's the biggest thing God could give me right there. But it is the earnest of an inheritance. And here's what the Bible says about the inheritance eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. He is an earnest of what is coming. We are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ, heirs of God and of the universe. In this particular chapter, it says that Paul was praying for the spirit of revelation to show these Ephesian believers in the last clause of verse 18 of chapter 1 what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints there is some riches and glorious riches and a glorious inheritance coming that we can't imagine but God's revealed a little bit to us that the earnest he put down is himself sorry I'm yelling How else do you talk about this? Now, my dear brothers and sisters, the Lord God of heaven has predestinated you to an inheritance. Get excited with me, brethren. It is called the riches of the glory of His inheritance. I'm sorry, I can't do it. Amen. I don't know how to do it, and there might be a way to do it that's better than the way I do it, but I just want to preach intensely and loud and hopefully read these verses so that you can see we're reading them distinctly and that you can see the sense of them is true. I just want to make manifest the gospel, put it on the table, and let you embrace it if God's given you a conscience for it. This is just fabulous to me. You know... We have the word seal and we have the word earnest about the Holy Spirit given in more places than just this one. And I hope you saw some of those that I shared with you earlier. It's in chapter 4 and verse 30 of this book. It's in 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. It's in 2 Corinthians 1.22. Paul knew it. God knew it. Let me tell you something about God. God has an inheritance for you. A good, loving Father. Before He died and sits them down and tells them what He has in His last will and testament for them. So that they live in the earnest expectation of that hope while He's alive. They do not want their father to die prematurely. They're just excited about the love and the transaction that their father has written up for them. The God of heaven is a father like that and better. He wants the the heirs... Of his promises to know the certainty of his promises. Do you know what passage of scripture I'm referring to? And quizzers should know what I'm talking about. Where did God say he wanted the heirs of promise to know the immutability of his counsel and the certainty of their inheritance? Give me a number. Oh, Mark. Mark. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. It is a wonderful chapter where God said He wanted the heirs of His inheritance to know that they had it and for them to know that He, though He cannot lie, He said by two immutable things. I promise it to you and I cannot lie, but in order to give you a further proof of the immutability of my counsel, I will confirm it with an oath. An oath is when we swear by a power or value higher than ourselves to add credibility to our word. That's why in court, left hand on the Bible, right hand up, so help me God. That adds credibility to our word. If I say, so help me, yes, I'll tell you the truth. That's not very distinguishing at all. But so help me God. Now, how can God swear? Who can God appeal to higher than Himself? There is no one, so He swore by Himself. And that's what Hebrews 6, 13-20 teaches. Surely blessing, I will bless thee. He swore by Himself. Because He wants you to know the immutability of His counsel. That means it cannot be changed. When something mutates, it's changing. When something is immutable, it does not change. And God's counsel cannot change His covenant is absolutely sure, but He is such a loving Father, He went through the extra steps for the benefit of you and me by swearing. Swearing is appropriate when you swear in God's name for an important matter and you keep your oath. He swore by Himself for our eternal inheritance and He will perform it. Praise His glorious name. Your assurance, your assurance, your assurance depends on your faith and humble submission to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has put it in writing. Do you know what's shameful? If you had some relative that you didn't know had very much money, had an an attorney ask for an audience with you, and you sat with them in a nice boardroom, conference room, and they pulled out paperwork and said, this uncle of yours that you may not even know has bequeathed 10 million to you. Let, let me tell you what would happen to your face. These two points out here on your mouth would go up. Okay. The eyes would get large. You would get up out of your chair. Your face would glow with excitement for a measly Stinking 10 million bucks. Right. It can't do anything. Eli, who told Job, Job, if you are blessed to have one man in a thousand come and tell you that I have found a ransom, right. you are greatly blessed. God has sent all of us men that told us that a ransom had been found Amen. and that we have an eternal inheritance. And it's worth so much more than 10 million. When you are on your deathbed and the hose is right here, and you're trying to get, and for those of you that have watched people die up close and personal, and you're trying to get your last breath in, tell me how much 10 million will help. Nothing. You know what will help? This right here. I have sworn. With an oath, I have sealed you and I have given you the earnest of my own presence. Come to daddy. And so Stephen, with stones thudding off his body, would say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus of Nazareth, having been forsaken by God, believed this so much, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Are we ready to do that? These passages of Scripture are to get us ready to do that. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. These are great words. A trustee. Let me do it. Can I use the word trustee or will you fault me for not using a Bible word? You know what the Bible word is? A steward of the manifold mysteries of God. You have a steward today. That is sharing with you from God's writing that you have a gloriously rich inheritance coming and that He has given Himself and put Himself on the line to perform His promise, and you will get it. That is preaching the gospel. At times like this, it's a very desirable job. At other times, it is less desirable but at this time it's desirable. And I thank God for the privilege because I'm the least worthy of all his servants he's ever had. But I will shout his word no matter how worthy or unworthy I am. Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. If we didn't have the five phases of salvation what are we going to do with this redemption? I thought verse 7 told us that we already have redemption. And yet this verse here, 14, is telling us until our redemption. Which is true. The correct answer? Yes. They're both true. The redemption of verse 7 is our legal redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary when His blood was shed and He said, it is finished. What was finished was purchasing us from the claims that God's justice had against us for our sins. We were free. We had been bought back from the claims of God against us, which was the penalty of death. The wages of sin is death. But, the de- but Jesus Christ's death in our place bought us back from that legal claim against us and gave us forgiveness of sins. So that happened legally at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus ascended up into heaven and through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. We were justified. We were made righteous. We were forgiven all our sins. We were redeemed from God's claim against us. But we've still got a problem. Some of us are still down here. And we've got these stinking carcasses wrapped around our spirits. So there's another redemption coming. He is going to come and buy us back from the power of death clutching at our bodies. And He is going to deliver us out of this veil of tears and out of this world of cemeteries and take us into heaven. And even if we die, which means our spirit gets to go be with our Father, He has promised that he has purchased our bodies and he will come back for them and deliver them into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Jesus died for us body, soul, and spirit. And he's going to come back and get our bodies. He's going to buy us back from the claims of death on our bodies. It's the The Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. This redemption that is coming is the final phase of redemption. We were chosen, blessed, and predestinated to redemption eternally. Jesus died legally to give us the forgiveness of sins and to free us from the claims of God's justice against us. We are regenerated, showing that we're the sons of God. We hear the news of our redemption. And we're told in this preaching of the gospel that Jesus died to redeem us from our sins. And yet, that there's another redemption in the future. Which is the final phase of redemption. Which is our deliverance from the grave. Yes, Adam, I thought about you. You better be saying amen. You know what I thought about you studying for this particular verse? Psalm 49, verse 13. You know, David is talking about the the rich the rich, the poor, all men are going to be thrown into the grave like the carcasses of sheep. One verse is positive in the whole psalm. But God shall redeem my soul from the power of the grave. And that is the redemption we're talking about. Now you read it last night, so I have no thunder to drop on you right now except to repeat it. But look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. God was merciful to us showing us the five phases of salvation, which includes several phases of redemption, which includes several phases of adoption. He mercifully opened up the New Testament for us to see the splendor there without confusion. Because we've got redemption already possessed in verse 7, and we've got redemption not yet realized In verse 14, we've got a problem. Unless we pull them apart and say this is legal redemption by Christ's blood, this is final phase redemption of buying our bodies back from corruption in the earth and resurrecting them. Come forth! Do you know how long it's going to take you to come forth? As long as it took Lazarus. And he didn't have any power to do it on his own. It was by the life-giving, forceful voice of the Son of God. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 17 through 22, describes that this whole creation is groaning in travail under the pain of sin which brought death upon it. But it's going to be delivered. And I have preached on it before, so I'm not going to go through those verses right now. But look at verse 23. And not only they, that is not only the whole creation... That is groaning in travail. Roses. Everything dies. Your little puppy dogs die. Your little kitties die. Your roses die. Everything dies. Everything rusts. Everything falls apart. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. We are some of the first ones. We apostles and we Jews are some of the first ones to have been given the Holy Spirit Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Is there anyone old enough today in here to groan within yourself? Yes, Charlie, I'm looking at you. Yes, we groan. Look at this verse. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. Now, wait a minute. I thought it said back there in verse 15 that we cry Abba Father because He's the Spirit of adoption already in us, And if we're led by Him, we are the sons of God. Verse 14. Can you see all that in verses 14 through 16? That we've already been adopted? Well then why in the world is He saying that we're waiting for our adoption? Because the five phases of salvation. There's another aspect of adoption yet to come. We groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption. And I love these little words. To wit. It means... Jonathan, I'll help you by telling you what I meant so that you don't get confused about adoption at different time points. To wit, the redemption of our body. Is that helpful? Is is the Lord kind to us? To wit, the redemption of our body. Adoption. Predestinated to the adoption of sons. In the fullness of time, God came forth, sent forth His Son that was under the law to redeem them that were under the law that they might receive the adoption of sons, born again to be the sons of God, preach the gospel to them to know that they are God's sons and how to live to act like His sons, and yet there's a phase of adoption yet to come, the redemption of our bodies then we will have been adopted body, soul, and spirit. There isn't a think tank, university, or anywhere you can go to learn anything of value. This is incredible, and that's why it's called the gospel, the good news and glad tidings of things God has done for his children. The assurance of your eternal life depends on your earnest and your seal being unquenched in your life, ungrieved in your life. Ephesians chapter 1, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. God has bought you. Jesus has bought you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says very plainly, Meats for the body and the body for meats, God shall destroy both it and them. I mean, that's just a little saying of man about, you know, it's all irrelevant. We eat, we die, we eat, you know, the next generation eats, they die. And uh, then in 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul takes over with the mystery of the gospel with these kind of words in the same sentence, the same verse. Now the body is not for fornication. But for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. The Lord Jesus Christ sits on his throne at this hour, ruling and reigning over the universe, with one of his objectives saving your body. We corrupted it in Eden. No one else has any explanation whatsoever for the origin. Of death. If life can spontaneously occur in a vacuous universe and then reproductive life at that, so that life was initiated with male and female and the ability to procreate, they can yap all they want, they don't have a clue about anything. Where did death come from if life was the spontaneous result of some stupid big bang? while a little bit more saliva fell out of Stephen Hawking's mouth. The slobbering slob. We know where life came from. We know where death came from. And Jesus died for our bodies, including our souls and spirit. i mean, in 1 Corinthians 6.13. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, Jesus Christ's body was resurrected, and will also raise up us by his own power. This is the redemption of our body. This is the final phase of adoption. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, and brethren, we should listen to this very carefully. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? If my body, is that important to Jesus Christ, should I join my body to a prostitute? God forbid, it says. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. That's the nature of sexual intercourse. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. How are we joined to the Lord? There's one spirit within us that's his spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? These are basic fundamental facts of our religion. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? Is this all coming together? We've been given a seal. We've been given in earnest. It's the Holy Spirit and He's within us. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. What's the price? The precious blood of Christ. Purchasing our bodies. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. We are God's twice. And yes, your pastor has told you that many times because I never want you to forget it. He is our Creator and He is our Savior. He chose to make us and we owe Him everything because He made us. And we owe Him everything because He paid the precious blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, for us. We are twice His. We have a redemption coming and we're called the purchased possession. Because we were purchased by the blood of the Son of God. And that's why it says, don't you know that you were bought with a price? If we were bought from some earthly trouble or claim against us, or certain death, a a pardon was purchased from a president or a governor, if any of those things happened, we would rejoice and be thankful, and we would live for the one that had purchased that pardon for us. God purchased the pardon for us against Himself by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to die for us that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. We owe Him everything. You're twice His. Who can steal you? Are you kidding? There's no one that can come close to getting us away from God. We're twice His. Who can buy you? Who could pay a price like that? Who can charge you? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That verse comes after the one Eric quoted to us a little while ago. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Your body is the Lord's. I abominate cremation. I abominate cremator's. In 1960, only 3% of the bodies in this country were cremated. Only 3% in 1960. The first crematorium in this country was 1870. The country that had been in existence for 200 years. Every intelligent person that is not in diapers knows that you bury a body. But we picked up the Eastern religion of the Hindus and started burning our dead. And it doesn't matter if you can't afford it, afford it anyway. If you can't afford it, come to us if you're a member of this church and we'll help you afford it. If you read our document against cremation on the website which is advertised by Google AdWords around the world, one of the principal arguments is that we've been bought with a price and we're supposed to glorify God in our bodies. We don't desecrate our bodies by a Hindu practice at the end of a life of pretending we're a Christian. Can you believe that? I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus every week of their lives for 70 years and then I love Harry Rama. Burn me like a Hindu. Sorry. But I'm not very sorry. Do you know what the last part of verse 14 says? Under the praise of His glory. Do you know what the first part of verse 12 says? That we should be to the praise of His glory. Why has God done all this? Why is he going to dump on us joint airship with Jesus Christ when we meet him? For the praise of his glory. Why did he give his son to die in our place? For the praise of his glory. Why are we vessels of mercy and vessels of honor? For the praise of his glory. What do you think we ought to give him today and tomorrow and the rest of this week until he comes for us, we got to give him praise of his glory. He is a glorious God. His salvation is glorious. His Son is glorious. I wish I knew how to preach them both to you. Love the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and mercy and peace in ways that you've never seen or imagined is just around the corner because all of us are just a short distance away of meeting him. Our Creator and our Savior through Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of His word. Amen.